included this past year that said the average American spends two hours and 45 minutes a week with their friends. Now, this number may not mean much to you, but if you go back before the pandemic, it was actually five hours and 30 minutes, yeah, is the average of how much we spent time with friends over the course of an entire week. So what we have to ask ourselves is what happened post-COVID that cut that time in half, that we are no longer hanging out with our friends the way we did before the pandemic arrived? Have we lost some sort of skill, ability, or desire to actually connect with one another? And actually what Cody just talked about in our newcomer meeting we're having afterwards, we're gonna talk history of the church, who we are, all that kind of stuff, but also be very intentional about how can we help you guys connect a little bit deeper into community and friendships and the other people of the church. Now, with that said, I also just discovered a revolutionary new idea on how to start building community better in a church. And so I wanna give you an example of this. Again, it's a little scary, it's a little out there, but here's how it goes. Imagine if on a Sunday morning, each and every one of you, you picked one person to approach and say, I don't think we've met before. My name's David, what's your name? Ben's great meeting you. Hey, have you been coming to North Star for a while? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that pastor great that they've got? Like, is that great? So it could look like that. Or, hey, I don't think we've met before. Hey, I'm David. Hey, Steve, good seeing you. Great. And so I know that's scary, but just the revolutionary idea that if you found one person that you've never met every Sunday, approached them and just said, hey, I I don't think we've met before. Now say it like that in case you have met them before. Like it's just, hey, I'm not sure. You shake hands and then maybe it's, how long have you been coming to North Star? Do you guys live around here? Hey, I noticed you have some kids with you. And that consistent communication that happens among all of you, I'm telling you, it would radically transform this place. You guys are so friendly. So it breaks my heart when people leave our church and they say, this is the most unfriendly place I've ever been to. And really what's happened is we've just lost a little bit of that skill and ability to just reach out a hand and say, hey, I haven't met you before. And so I'm not gonna shame or judge, but starting next Sunday, I cannot wait to see all of you engaging one another like that. So this is gonna take supernatural power. So let me pray right now. So Father, help us to become a church that just is so invitational and so embracing of anybody who is new or we don't recognize or we don't know. And so, Lord, we know that can be scary. We know we're rebuilding some muscles and all this, but we want a community that reflects your generosity, your grace, your love. Lord, I also wanna pray for the message today. We're gonna be hitting some hot topics, Lord. So would you please get me out of the way? Would you take my words, uh, my agenda, my motives, all just the gunk that doesn't need to be here, get rid of it, help me just become invisible, and that it's your presence, your power that speaks to us today. It's in your name we pray, amen. So this past week, I have been scouring the scriptures and I have found only one passage, one moment in the four gospel accounts where Jesus advises us on how to respond to the government. Like I looked everywhere I could, but in the gospel accounts, I only found this one passage. Now this one passage does show up in three of the four gospels, but still it's just 
one moment, one time. And I actually caught myself wishing, you know, Jesus, could you have given us more examples because of the great impact that politics has in our lives today? Here's another survey. It indicates that 22% of all millennials have actually ended a romantic relationship because of political strife. Is anybody here a millennial? You guys aren't that young anymore, right? A little bit older? Hopefully this has not happened to you. But 22% of your generation has ended a romantic relationship because of the differing of political perspectives. It's not just for the younger generation. Maybe you saw this story a few years ago. It was highly publicized about a 73-year-old woman named Gail McCormick, a retired California prison guard who divorced her husband of 22 years on the day that he came home and let her know who he had voted for in that election. It was not who she voted for. And she said to the news, it was a deal breaker and I have never felt so betrayed in my life. 22 years of marriage, done. When they asked her, did you guys have any other issues? Not really. One vote, 22 years, completely over. Go look it up. It's on the internet, right? It's gonna be, it's gonna be true. So a, re <laughs> a recent poll of 6,000 people found that 16% of all those who responded stopped talking to a friend or family member as a direct result of the last election. Now, 16% really didn't catch my eye right away, but if you take that out of a group of 6,000 people, that's hundreds and hundreds of families, of friendships divided because of their different perspectives. <clears throat> Even here at North Star, we're not immune to this. Just like all churches, we've had liberals leave because we're not liberal enough. We've had conservatives leave because we're not conservative enough. About three years ago in the midst of the pandemic, I'm sitting right there in that room and a family of 18 years who is so near and dear to my heart, they sit me down and they say, David, we are a conservative family and this church is not conservative enough. 18 years over. I kid you not, the very next day in that same room, right there, the green room, a family that had been at North Star for 13 years sits me down and they say, David, we are a liberal family and you are not liberal enough. North Star can no longer be our church. My heart was broken, but I tell you, it was overshadowed by the confusion in my head. I just didn't understand what in the world is going on. What do I even do with that? So we're not immune either. Maybe all of us wish that Jesus talked a little bit more about Roman government and politics to give us a little more of a clear direction of how in the world are we supposed to deal with this stuff today as we walk through our own tensions? But what if that's the clarity though? And this is what kind of got me to pause. But what if this is intentional? What if there's actually meaning in Jesus's lack of mentioning this stuff all throughout the gospel accounts? So if you're just joining us, we're in the second section of our three-part, three-month gospel series. We're gonna be going through the gospel here on Sunday morning. Also, if you do not have a journal, I don't mean to sound like an info commercial, but right through those double doors, you've got journals on both sides. We would love for you to be on the reading plan because this is what we're going through as well in that plan. During the first part of this three-part series, we talked about being like Jesus and how he lived out his relationship with God the Father. That's where it starts. You guys are important, but the number one relationship is how do we be like Jesus and how he related to God the Father. 
And then now in this section, we're starting to talk about, okay, now how do we live like Jesus and how he lived out his relationship with his followers, how he cultivated Christian community with God's kids. And the first step in doing that is we just have to be aware. And what I'm asking you to be aware of is that there are hundreds of killers of Christian community out there. And I think right now, one of the biggest killers of Christian community is in our poor handling of politics. And so let's open up the word in this one passage where Jesus directly advises us on how to respond to the government. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. And uh, you guys may have remembered in Mark chapter 12, it was in our reading plan on Friday, we looked at this passage. Here's a different telling of it through Matthew. It says this, Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said to Jesus, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now you may be thinking, how are these opponents of Jesus? Well, keep in mind, they don't admire him. They're buttering him up. That's how you lay a trap. You get him to think that they're for you. It says in verse 17, tell us then, what is your opinion, Jesus? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? There's the trap. Now let's set the story here. You have two groups of Jewish leaders. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees are Jewish religious leaders who want nothing to do with the government. Out with Rome, don't pay the tax, it's all bad. Now the tax, the imperial tax, is what's called a head tax. And all that means is that it's not an income tax. It's no variable. It's you're a citizen of Rome. You pay the tax, period. And so the Pharisees are against it. They want no government. And then you have the Herodians, Jewish leaders who are all for Herod. He is the ruler over the Jewish folks. And so they're for the government. They're for the tax. They have no problem with it at all. We want to see stronger government. The Pharisees want to see less. And I just, as I started writing this down, it kind of reminded me of our political situation. Today. And I don't follow politics much, but I've heard like a rumor that there's one group that really wants government control. And I guess there's this other group that doesn't want government control. I'm not sure, but that's what I've heard. So you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians that are on two different sides. There's these gaping differences but it doesn't matter right now because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they come together under this common cause of let's trap and trip up Jesus. Let's bring conflict his way. I think back to 9-11. I was in my mid-20s when that happened. And I know that Republican and Democrats probably did not agree totally on how to respond to what happened. But I remember that being the time in my life where our country felt most united. We had this common cause. There was a common enemy of terrorism that actually brought people together. And I don't want to put a dark cloud on that moment, but that kind of unification is what's happening with the Pharisees and the Herodians right now. We've got our common enemy. Let's come together and let's take him down. And so these new allies are setting up a trap. And so here's the trap. If Jesus says, pay the tax, there is going to be outrage from the Jewish people. If he says, don't pay the tax, there's going to be outrage from Rome. So what it seems like is that no matter what Jesus says, 
no matter how he answers the question, conflict is going to come. It feels like a no-win situation. But here's one of the things I love about Jesus. With Jesus, there's no such thing as a no-win scenario. There is no such thing. We see in verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He can see right into their hearts. He knows what they're doing. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, which is about equal of a day wage of a worker. And he asked them, whose image is on this? Whose inscription is on this coin? And they replied, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, what I want us to do right now is instead of having me continue to talk, I want to give you guys five minutes and we're going to do a little pathway practice. So in our pathway groups, we get together after having read the scriptures throughout the week in our journal. There's a little spiritual practice at the bottom of each day. We do those as well. Sometimes we get to some of them. Sometimes we get to all of them. And then we just discuss it. It's called midrash. It's when you bring your thoughts of the scriptures together and you just discuss. And so that's what I want us to do right now. Just like we do in a pathway group. I want you to spend five minutes reading the scripture and two questions I want you to ask yourself. Why did Jesus encourage them to give to Caesar? And why were these hypocrites united to trap Jesus? Why did they leave amazed? And so if you've, you know, come with somebody today, feel free to turn to them and have that discussion. But if not, just read it, go through those two questions, and then when we're done, we're going to pretend this is just a small little classroom here, and I'm going to ask for your feedback. And you're going to shout it out, and I'm going to repeat it in case everyone couldn't hear it and for the folks online that are watching. So next five minutes, read it, think about it, pray about it, ask yourself those two questions, and then we'll gather some feedback. All right, let's go.
do you guys think? So the first one we asked is, why did Jesus encourage them to give to Caesar? Any thoughts? Just maybe show a hand if you're ready. Oh, there's too many hands. Hold on. <laughs> oh, Robin, you did. Thank you, Robin. Yes, what do you think? It doesn't matter that much. Oh, I like that. It doesn't matter that much. Why did Jesus say, give to Caesar? Any thoughts? Yeah, Jason. Yeah, yeah. a gap there. So Jason said, separating the eternal and the temporal. Yes. Is that Don? Yeah. Sorry, the light's like... <laughs> what did you get? Okay. this person way further than you should. That's great. Here, you know, when I thought about it, um, it kind of goes along to what Don was sharing there. Like I was thinking each ruler back in that time, they would mint the coin of that kingdom with their image. They stamped their image on it. It was one of the ways that hopefully people would see it and say, this is the ruler of the land. There's the picture. There's the inscription. And I'm reminded now, this is the king. But the thing with Caesar is he's not the only one that stamps his image. You guys look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says that God takes his image and places it on mankind. And so God isn't stamping his image on metal coins, but he's stamping it on human hearts. That is his way of saying, that life belongs to me. I'm the ruler of that heart. And so in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that go ahead, just Give Caesar the coins. That's fine. They belong to him. But give to God what belongs to his kingdom and to his image and to his heart. Go ahead and give him the metal coins, but give God your heart. His image is on the coin. It can go to him. But my image is on your heart. God says that comes to me. And so Jesus doesn't hesitate in this moment. And what I imagine why is he knows, of course, that God's kingdom is built on the confessions of hearts, not on the coins of Herod. And so you can go ahead, Herod, and, and, and Caesar and take those coins. And so it's such a simple response. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar, scissors. Give to scissors what is scissors. And give to God what is God. But it's so simple, yet obviously it leaves the Pharisees and the Herodians completely amazed to the point that they leave. And so let me ask you guys a second question. Why did these people, these hypocrites, who were united to trap Jesus, why did they leave so amazed? What do you think? Show of hands. Anybody got a thought? Yeah, John. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they thought something was right, something was wrong. What else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, Steve? Yeah, heads or tail, Jesus is the whole coin. I love that. Mimi, do you have something? 
you get the decision. Yeah, I love that. You know, my thought was, um, it's pretty, actually a lot simpler than theology and coins and all this and that. I just thought maybe they, they had the impression that their plan was foolproof. Like they actually thought, we've got him trapped. Jesus will have to convey in this moment what he is really against. Because if Jesus says, hey, I'm against the tax, what he's really saying is I'm against Rome. And if he says, I am for the tax, well, now he's against the Jewish people. This is what they were going for. The idea that their expectation was that Jesus is going to pick sides, he's going to announce his allegiance, and he is going to declare his enemy. That was the hope. Because what they wanted is for Jesus to broadcast what he's against. And if you've ever done that in your own life or even been on social media for five minutes, what you know is that the moment that somebody starts broadcasting what they're against, conflict almost always comes. If we can just get Jesus to declare what he's against, conflict is going to debilitate him. It's going to overwhelm him. Conflict is going to come. That was the trap. And I think instead, we see Jesus do the exact opposite. He refuses to pick one of the two sides. And he says, I'm going to introduce a new way. And so instead of condemning what Jesus is against, Jesus instead states what I'm for. He says in both situations, I'm for coins going to Caesar, and I am for your heart going to God. He never declares what he's against. He says, I'm for this, go ahead and give the coins, and I am for that, give God your heart. This is what amazed the people, because the cultural norm of that time is that in political discourse, you go one of two ways. Either I'm against Rome, or I'm against the Jews, and Jesus refuses to say that. Give to God what is God and give to Caesar what is his. There is a third way. I think that's what makes this moment so special is that instead of Jesus sparking conflict, which comes in political traps, he instead sparks a kairos. You guys know what a kairos moment is? It's from Mark 1.15. Jesus' inaugural address. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And that word time in that verse the Greek is not chronological time. It's a moment in time where God breaks through. It's like when all time stands still because it's an aha moment. God is grabbing your heart. He's captivating your mind because he's saying something and there's something specific he wants you to do. We've all had those moments where something just pauses, freezes in time because you know deep down inside that's important. That's a Kairos moment. And the passage at the end says the Herodians and the Pharisees were amazed. I think that's another way of saying they had a Kairos moment. It was the captivating aha moment where they paused. Their attention was grabbed by something so new, so unbelievable, that their entire plan was immediately reversed. They went from on the attack, trying to trap Jesus, to leaving and being amazed. That's a Kairos moment. They were on the attack and they retreated, walking away amazed. Jesus refused to pick a fight, play politics, and declare what he was against. He just stated what he was for. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. That idea was so revolutionary, so radical, that even his opponents did not know what to do, and they walked away amazed. Jesus did not create a conflict. He created a kairos, and there is such a gaping difference between those two. And so maybe, just maybe, 
there is a different way. There is another way for us to handle these kind of tensions today. And I know what one of the biggest problems is for each and every one of us is that the scriptures aren't entirely clear on how to handle the stuff that we're wrestling with today. Because in one moment, you have God being very clear that he's empowered evil governments like Rome and Babylon. And he also says to us to submit to those that he puts in charge. But then the same breath, you and I are called as followers of Jesus to stand against injustice and to make sure nobody is marginalized. And those things sometimes don't feel like they fit together. And then we just have modern day examples in everyday life. Jump all the way back to 300 AD. The Roman government decides after decades of persecuting Christians, burning them on poles, we're gonna make it the official religion of the empire. Can you imagine that day when that announcement came out? It should have been heaven on earth, but instead it led to legalism and slaughter. Go look up the Christian Crusades, which should have been the greatest celebration for the followers of Jesus, led to the exact opposite of what they had assumed. And then you look at our world today. We've got followers of Jesus all over the world, in China, in India, in Iran, places where the gospel in the church is spreading like wildfire. And they are believers who have only known government opposition. It amazes me to flip through the pages of history and notice not all the time, but most of the time, when the church has government favor, it actually has made the church fat and fanatical. And I don't understand that. And then I look around our world today and I see places of persecution and the gospel spreading like wildfire. I'm just being honest, I don't know what to do with that. And so as Americans today, 2024, how do we deal with these types of questions, this type of confusion when it comes to politics mixing in with our faith? And I'm just gonna tell you today what we always tell you. And what we tell you is that you should go out and properly participate in politics. In this great democracy of ours, it is a privilege to live in this country and be able to participate in politic, politics like we can. And so I would encourage you, strive for change, take a stand. But if you take a stand, my encouragement would be is to make sure that the foundation you're standing on is built on what you are for and not what you are against. That's an entirely different foundation. I'm not telling you not to be against certain things, but when you build the foundation of what you're standing on, let it start with what you are for. Because what I've noticed in my own life is that when I have an issue that I'm against, there is always an underlying parallel message for what I am for. I have to dig in, I gotta find it, but it's there. I guarantee you, if there's an issue you're against, there's also a message of what you are for. When I think about our care center ministry, one of our partners over there is Life Forward. It's a pregnancy care ministry. And what you'll find is that on Life Forward's webpage, they talk a lot about what they are for. And what they wanna do is help women make life-affirming decisions. They wanna make sure they know there's options 
They talk a lot about God's love. They talk a lot about the redemptive nature of God that can make beauty out of ashes. But nowhere on their webpage does it say we are against abortion, we're against baby killers, or anything like that. That's not how they lead. They start with, here's what we're for. Here's what we're about in the redemptive work of God in his love. No wonder that ministry is thriving the way they are. Let's build the foundation on what we are for, not what we're against. Don't hear me say, don't ever be against anything. But what's the message that we're leading with? We live in a place and a time where this stuff is confusing. I absolutely get it. So all we can do is look back at Jesus and try to the best of our ability to figure out, Lord, what are you teaching us? What are you showing us? And what I picked up on Jesus is that he really didn't spend his time challenging the Roman government. He spent his time challenging the stubborn religious. And so if we are going to live like Jesus and we're gonna stay united as a church in any political season that comes our way, then we have to be committed to rooting out stubborn religiosity. We gotta be committed to rooting it out and saying to ourselves, this is not gonna be the building block of how I face the rest of the world. And that's going to take a radical commitment to Jesus. That's going to take us taking all chips, putting them on the table, and saying, Lord, I am all in. Because this is not easy stuff. To be the kind of people who will pause before anything they speak, anything they post, and are willing to ask themselves, is this message more likely to spark a conflict for the enemy or a kairos for God. I want us to be that type of people that we're willing to pause and ask that question. Let's live like Jesus. And so I'm gonna have you guys stand right now and the worship team's gonna come back up and we're gonna move into a time of communion and prayer. Here's the thought I want you to have about communion today is that Jesus was not against anybody on the cross. He wasn't against the Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles. He was for every one of us. He says, I'm going to the cross on behalf of all humanity. And so it's our decision if we want to say yes. And the way that we say yes is believe in Jesus. I invite you into my heart as my Lord and Savior who died on the cross for the sins that I could not pay on my own and then rose again three days later to offer eternal life. And so when we say yes to that, one of the ways we thank him for that gift is we take communion. The crackers representing the body that was broken. The juice representing the blood that was poured out. And so if you have not made that decision today, there'll be prayer teams down here that would love to tell you more. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because maybe for some of us, that word Christian is just loaded. And you're thinking, I've heard things about those people. And I don't want to be a part of that. And maybe what the enemy has done is he's confused us in believing that a follower of Jesus is something that it's really not meant to be. And so our teams down here would love to talk to you, pray for you, and whatever your prayer request today, I encourage you to come up. You know, in our Pathway Journal, there's a prompt exactly for today that says, take a step to get prayer. And so maybe that's a challenge for all of us. What is that one thing you feel like you need prayer for today? Do you have the desire to see greater unity, greater friendship and community with your family, with those in your life, your friends, 
Maybe right now you feel fragmented in some relationships. And just to come up and say, Lord, will you place a hand of healing on this relationship? Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's something else. But you're just desiring greater unity in your life. And you don't feel like you've got it right now. Let's pray for whatever the Lord is putting on your heart. But I do get a sense there's probably some of us today that can relate to this idea that there are people you love, people you care about, and there's just too much tension right now. And we desire to see the Lord bring healing. So let me pray. So Father, as we step into this time, would you guide us into experiencing a deeper sense of your presence, your power? Would you break off chains? Would you bring greater unity? It says in Psalm 133, verse one, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. Jesus, that's what we are for. Unification completely under you, the King, our Lord and Savior. The image that has been stamped on our life is yours, Father. And so let us be united in that truth. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So as you feel led, Come on up, receive communion, receive prayer. Please do not get your kids for the next six minutes because they're not done yet. They're not done yet. I'm not bribing you to stay, but we don't want to cheat them out of their experience. Let's worship.